With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details. From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. The Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the midcourt strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. And Magic Johnson is out there celebrating! Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win! Yes! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Troy. Yes! It was all over. It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. Alongside my co host, Corbin Ford, I am Garrett Bougay. And on this week's episode, we're talking all things NBA Restart. We're recording this on a Sunday afternoon, so uh, we've we've watched uh, quite a few games from the first couple of days of the Restart, so we're going to be breaking down some of the things we've noticed, some of the games that we've watched. And uh, trust me, Corbin and I have been busy watching NBA basketball. Uh, so uh, we've got plenty to plenty to discuss, but... Uh, uh, but, but yeah, Corbin, first off... Uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's been a while. You know, we've been we've been going for for four months or so without uh, one of our biggest passions and something that we both spend a lot of time on. How has uh, how's the transition been back to uh, kind of uh, a little bit of a sense of normalcy? It's been kind of crazy. It's been it's been welcome. I will say that. Um, I wasn't expecting you know catching on. Just like I never left, you know, first two games and then just watching it as a fan, watching it just as an analyst, um, and then just four or five the next day, oh, I missed on a couple. And just having that that joy, that basketball's bat we were sharing before we started, the feeling of, of for two people watch the NBA as much as we do, how quick it is to feel like we're falling behind because of just the sheer amount of games being played, and yet we catch up on a lot of them, but just, wow, oh, wow, missed this one, or, you know, somebody randomly went off, or whatever the case may be, a couple of overtime thrillers, just how fun it's been. It, it's really been a blast to, to have the season back, and, you know, with all the trepidation surrounding it, and just in terms of everything going on on the outside, the pandemic, social justice, all of that, and then just having a moment of, wow, this this is good, like, I, I missed this, and I, you almost don't even realize how much you missed it. Absolutely, and uh, yeah, the, during the during the regular season, you know, I'll often be uh, watching a game that that was uh, was played like a week prior, just because you know I'm constantly catching up and I'm just wanting to watch all of the games that I find interesting. And 
you know, there's just not t- enough time in the day to to keep up. So there is a bit of that, and and yeah, especially now with uh, games being played, uh, you know, starting at like two thirty in the afternoon, and 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 games as late at uh, as late as nine p.m. at night. There's uh, there's games going on throughout, and and of course we have uh, uh, <laughs> we have jobs, and we have. Uh, sleep and we have uh, eating to do just as basic basic human functions that we have to uh, partake in also and so yeah it does feel like there's uh, there's not quite enough time in the day but but uh, let's let's get into talking about some of these games and and I thought we should we should just start off with the opening night affairs and uh, let's kick it off with that uh, that New Orleans Pelicans game against the Utah Jazz a game in which the Jazz end up winning 106-104. And uh, the, the thing that, that stood out to me right from the get-go, and, and one of the things that obviously was uh, was something we were both interested in heading into these games was the, the idea of like, okay, which players are in shape? Which players are out of shape? Which players uh, you know, were able to improve their their skill level during these four months i mean essentially for a lot of these guys it could be an off season to get healthy or to add stuff to their game and the first guy that that stood out to me watching the restart was brandon ingram that guy looks really really good man brandon ingram for me we talk we have, we're gonna talk about this i'm sure more in the future but most of your player easily he started off red hot and honestly you know, although he cooled off a little bit, um, and then he had a, a near, we don't want to get ahead of it, but a, a chance to win the game for them. He has been just amazing in how he's able to get to his spots, his drastically improved uh, free throw stroke, his his impressive uh, outside shot, being the go-to player for a team, and, and, and performing capably. You know, it took a couple years of, of um, development on that end, but I think he's flourishing as a player that many thought that he would become when he was drafted uh, second overall in 2016. Absolutely, yeah. It seemed like his uh, his handle was a little bit tighter. That that uh, that crazy improvement, that crazy jump in his in his uh, shooting percentages from beyond the arc and at the free throw line. It seems like he's continued to to improve in that area, which is a scary proposition. Uh, but uh, yeah, with his long arms and his ability to cover a lot of ground with those lengthy strides. And that uh, that smooth shooting stroke, he is uh, he is already a terror to try to defend, and the, the Jazz just really didn't have many answers throughout the night. Uh, and and one of the things also that was uh, you know I heard this on a on another podcast I believe it was I believe it was dunked on where they they mentioned Rudy Gobert. It seems like you know despite his positive coronavirus test. He, uh, he still looks just as good as ever. And the Jazz, while he was on the floor, had an 87 defensive rating. And when he was off, it was 141. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, obviously making a huge impact. And it looked like the Jazz also, unlike, you know, a lot of the regular season up to this point, made it more of a concerted effort to, uh, and, and Stan Van Gundy kind of mentioned this on the, on the broadcast, made it more of a concerted effort to to feed him for those lobs and and also get him the ball for a, for a couple of post touches. Oh yeah, you could tell that was sort of a focus for them, and it was something that that um made itself kind of relevant down the stretch. And it was it was hilarious. You brought up Gobert as far as bringing um, and I saw some Twitter a few times being um 
think of the last shot of one game or the last shot to close down one season, the first to start a new one or something like that. Well, yeah, he. I mean, just the just the idea that his positive test shut down the league and then he was the first person <laughs> to score on the restart was, uh, yeah, it was, yeah. was pretty funny. And, it was, and then he was the last person with those free throws to close the game. Oh. Yep. <laughs> so if you're into if you're into time and and the starts and finishes and drawing connections, like Rudy Gobert might be the person for you, um, especially <laughs> in this season. But yeah, it was a concerted effort for a game that honestly for the Pelicans couldn't start off any better, in my opinion. Right. Uh, Drew Holiday was excellent throughout the night. Zion Williamson, of course, uh, you know he had to leave the bubble momentarily, came back, and so he was on limited minutes. I believe played just 15, but he was very effective in that time. Um, but uh, one of the guys that I thought struggled quite a bit for New Orleans was uh, was Lonzo Ball. Um, you know, he, uh, he he actually did attempt a couple of mid rangers and a couple of, uh, of finishes around the basket, but it was it was weird. It was uh, he, he had a couple of right hand drives and then tried to finish with his left hand, and, and none of them appeared very close to going in. Uh, but it's, it's just one of those things where, you know, he's, he's improved the, the three-point shot uh, this season in particularly, but, uh, you know, he still, hasn't, uh, he, he still hasn't developed that ability to finish at the rim. And in this game, more than we've seen uh, for most of his career, he, he tried to he tried to finish, which in a way is a good sign. You know, it's good that he, he recognizes that's something he needs to work on. But at the same time, with the Pelicans needing to win these games, you know, uh, Lonzo Ball doing stuff that he's not particularly good at is is not uh, conducive to winning. Yeah, it just it, it, and mind you, it still places some of the weaknesses that you said that he had already. So it, it's... It's troubling, I guess, in some ways, at least for this year. For the and there's more reasons why the Pelicans haven't just are behind the eight ball in terms of a postseason play. But yeah, some of those weaknesses and like you said, the finishing around the rim and, and certain elements of his game that force position can be taken advantage of for the defense, knowing that you know they don't descend help as readily as you would other guards who are quick to Patrick Lane and finish around the rim with superb with superb touch. That's not something that Lonzo has technically. And you're right, he had down game when that three point shot, which is much improved. When it isn't falling, it, it, it makes him virtually uh, non-entity on the offensive end, aside from his great passing ability, of course, and rebounding. But in terms of putting the ball in the basket, uh, it's a risky proposition. And he's normally a, a solid defender, but even that I thought he was. And, and we've seen that. I, I've seen that from various players. We'll get into some other guys that I thought have, have looked sluggish defensively to, to begin this NBA restart. But, uh, yeah, I, I didn't think Lonzo was very good defensively either. Um, but uh, yeah, talking about uh, the Jazz, I, I thought one thing that was was interesting was you know without Boyan Bogdanovich, who is who is not going to play at all in the bubble due to that, uh, I believe it was a wrist surgery that he had just a, a couple of months after the uh, the season was postponed. But you know the the fact that the Jazz can put Royce O'Neal in that spot in the starting lineup, I thought the starting lineup for for Utah was was pretty decent. But where I thought they struggled and where they might continue to struggle is then coming off the bench, not having that uh, that quality wing off the bench in an O'Neal or an Ingles or, or whatever because both of those guys now have to start. Yeah, it definitely does weaken that depth. And also in terms of just both offer different strengths. O'Neal more defensively. Uh, Ingles is a great glue guy, offensive initiator in some ways. But you lack both of that. Um, 
your main guy becomes the gunner of Jordan Clarkson in terms of some or really any kind of self-created offense off of the bench. And, and that is a weakness. It's something that will, man, will probably manifest itself against other teams. Uh, where, I mean, I think we just saw with the, the next game they played in terms of just being lit up on that. And if their offense isn't carrying them, they have no rhythm. You're not getting that from the bench unless Clarkson is hitting. So that does make it difficult. But, um, yeah, that, that, that honestly is a, a problem. It didn't manifest itself against these Pelicans team uh, for a weird, for just the way they're playing. But the lack of a wing, and I guess it looks at how kind of thin it was up front in the sense that you were already going to start Bogdanovich or um, Ingles anyway, alongside O'Neal. You know what I mean? So you had one of them off the bench, uh, whether that was Ingles a lot this year, O'Neal, you know, last year, and you didn't have uh, Bogdanovich. But in terms of it now, the situations you have, you are relying on a lot more guys who are not used to that. I know, man, in the offense for the Jazz, it was a lot of um, off the bench, Clarkson and Moutier. And, and when Clarkson's not hitting, that's not great. And Moutier is, uh, I mean, I, I don't think of Moutier in offensive creation just in terms of hand-in-hand hand when you're trying to, like, get some instant offense off the bench for an offensive ref team all of a sudden for Utah with Mike Conley not having the greatest of seasons and, you know, Mitchell having a lot of pressure on his end to create. Yeah, I mean, Moutier is probably the, the biggest guy in that uh, in that perimeter rotation that gets minutes with uh, without without the likes of Bogdanovich, and yeah, he was he was dreadful. Um, and uh, you know, you you look at Mike Conley, and he did look. I mean, just from a, from an athleticism standpoint, I thought Conley looked pretty good out there. But uh, you know, one thing that I think has been missing for him you know, with the Jazz is that right-hand floater. You know, he just hasn't hit that shot with the Jazz nearly as as well as he did in Memphis, and, and that continued to, uh, to to be the case in, in that game against the Pelicans. He, he gets good looks, but is just not converting, and, and that's a big part of his offensive repertoire. Yeah, I mean, he, he looks healthy in that way. Like you said, the athleticism came, came, came to bear in this game, where he, he had a lot more zip around the basket, but in terms of just, just off rhythm, like you said, those shots were automatic for him back with the Grid and Grind Grizzlies. That's not a thing anymore in terms of a go-to consistently. You're right. It is a lot of them that are rolling off. And, you know, he's brought in to, to be more offensively assertive in this way um, for, for Utah to be a, a great complement to Mitchell in the backward. So to not have one of your go-to weapons, you know, you're relying on a lot more. He's a solid shooter, but it has been a, the greatest of seasons for him from there in general. And, and that is a lot more pressure on the create, much less the fact that, like we said, you're already down a guy in um, Bogdanovich who could do some offensive stuff. Creation was one of the better three-point shooters on the team, and you're putting a lot more on a guy who's already kind of had uh, a time spent just to get back, just to get healthier, and then to kind of find that rhythm, which are often two separate things. You know, being able to make the moves, okay, great. Now having the timing and the touch to be able to convert those looks. Absolutely. Now, uh, one of the one of the key storylines going down the stretch of this game, of course, the Pelicans had a, a significant lead at halftime and, and through most of the second half, but the Jazz make a fourth quarter run, and uh, you know Zion Williamson, not necessarily as far as I've heard on a minute's limit, but they were basically playing him just the first uh, three to five minutes of, of each quarter. But uh, there, there was uh, there was a big question mark over the fact that they did not bring him in, you know, for just the last couple of minutes of the ball game with the game on the line. You know, this guy is arguably uh, your best player. Maybe if you if you like Ingram more, he's he's definitely one of your top two guys. And yeah, if if you're gonna have some sort of minutes limit or or keep him under a certain threshold, uh, 
make sure that uh, the last couple of minutes of a close game is a part of that. Yeah, uh, that's what I've been saying. So he's on a minutes burst, and it feels very much like, um, or it is pretty much reminiscent of his first entrance back into the league, um, starting off with the Spurs and going on from there where he had, you know, a couple minutes here and there. Fine. If you're going to have a structured set of minutes that he's going to have to play, in this case 15, whatever the case may be, yeah, make sure you have him on when it's, as Magic would say, winning time. You know, where where his impact is most needed. So, opening the game, fine. But if you're going to have, or you're going to have him play, make sure there's minutes set aside for him to play when it actually matters. I remember the uh, announcing team saying, basically with two minutes left in what was a very tight game, that we pretty much seen the last of Zion. That, that should not be the case. Because that means he was playing minutes that could have been better optimized or better better utilized uh, in this time right here. Make an impact. He was making mincemeat in the post. He was hitting a great behind-the-back pass, drawing attention, rumbling to the paint. That was really good to see. Like, you know he's going to play a set amount. Make sure that you have been staggered so he can come in, you know, if it's close and last minutes of the game to, to make a potential impact there. And his gravity could have been used to great effect. Everyone knew the ball was going to Brandon Ingram at the end of the game. He still was able to make space. But the point being, you have that much more dynamic of an offense, that much more versatile offense in a situation where you could either go for the tie or go for the win down the stretch, that would have been beneficial had Zion been there. But because of what felt to me, quite frankly, a misuse of his minutes, he was not able to be out there. It should not be a foregone conclusion with two minutes left in the game, in a tight game, minutes limit or not, for a team that's trying to win every game that they have conceivably, that one of your better players isn't available to you, just strictly due to the fact that you put him in some minutes that you could have better used otherwise. It's, it's a bit confusing to me, you know, I, I get the whole idea of, you know, injuries, especially with guys that aren't in, in perfect shape happen because the muscles get tired, you know, that leads to injuries and that sort of thing. So, so I totally understand the playing him in short bursts at the start of each quarter, that sort of thing. But also I wonder, you know, if you play him three minutes at the start of the first, play him three minutes at the start of the second, why can't you play him three minutes at the end of the second quarter? Uh, you know, you, you've got a six-minute gap between the nine-minute mark when he would, would theoretically come out and the three-minute mark before halftime, and then he can play three minutes, and then he gets another significant break at the half, right? Um, and, and so, to me, you should be able to, you should be able to get, um, you know, three minutes at the start of all four quarters. You know, that gives you, that gives you up to 12 and then you should be able to play him three minutes at the end of each half, also. Um, and and to me, you can you can get him up to eighteen while still fulfilling that need to make sure that he's not playing for for too much of an extended time and making sure that he's getting a significant rest between each time he steps on the floor. Um, Pelican staff, Alvin Gentry. If any of y'all end up listening to this, you just heard the blueprint for what you need to do for Zion moving forward. <laughs> Right here, okay, because you're right. I mean, one way or another, there was a better way to handle the way that they've been handling him, and especially when you're in a, a rapidly closing window for the postseason, you need to have your best players on the floor. He's not injured; he's just trying to work back in shape. You know, get him in a spot where he is best able to do that, um, and also make an impact. And, and you just said it like that is one very, very solid way to do that. Um, and it's a shame; it, it just quite frankly is because. That kind of, I felt like that happened in the Spurs game, too, although that was much lower stakes. But in terms of, well, you know, he's needed, so why not just, you know, right. play him in certain minutes? You know, it took, it took him to be red hot for him to even be delayed as long as he was. Because remember, uh, Alvin Gentry had subs in it several times for him, and it, it should never have come to that. 
You know what I mean? He was getting that well before, you know, he was going off for the last time. This was the middle of the fourth quarter, right? So, like, around the four or three-minute mark. It was like a tight game. Like, that's when you need him the most. You know what I mean? They were treading water. Just have Ingram in that spot or, or whoever the case may be. Yeah, and in and, and these games, uh, you know, there's there's only eight of them. They're trying to get in the playoffs. You know, Alvin yeah. Gentry needs to get the memo that J.J. Redick has made the playoffs every season of his career. You know, that streak needs to continue. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the, um, the, you know, that's a game that they had to win, and they didn't put everything on the table to do so. And, and again, yeah, I don't think, you know, there, there was this element of, oh, he played, he played five minutes in that fourth quarter. But it's like, yeah, just don't do that. You know, play play him three minutes at the end of the second quarter and keep him to three minutes in the fourth to start the fourth. And then he's got plenty of time to rest prior to the last couple of minutes and, and get him out there. But yeah, it's, uh, it's rough. And then, you know, you, you talk about those games that the Pelicans have to win, those games that are, are there for the taking. If you don't get those, then you've got the, game, the, the games like the Clippers game where they get blown out and, and it's expected that they're going to lose that game because the Clippers are a better basketball team. Uh, so, you know, you, you already talk about being, uh, you know, trying to, trying to get into the postseason. They're already, uh, you know, very unlikely to do so just based on, on those first couple of results. And, and yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's a window that is just rapidly closing down. And it, it's really sad because a lot of this, you know, a lot of it's a young team playing down the stretch, losing games to superior opponents. We get it. You, you have an easier schedule, um, the Pelicans do, and these first two games weren't really, I mean, these are the hardest two. So the fact you lost, I'm fine. But I think it's the way that you lost and the fact that you could have tried to have one of you in better places. Going down 16 or being up 16 and having to cough that up. It is not a great way, especially when you can put that hand in a team that, you know, was one of your more winnable of, of your harder opponents. And then, you know, just getting slapped in the mouth and their next team wasn't great either. But a lot of this just feels like, particularly in the case of the minutes we just talked about with Zion, could have been more easily prevented. Yeah. Um, one guy I will say for the uh, the Pelicans, uh, you know, I, I mentioned Drew Holiday earlier. He looked great. But another guy as well, I, I thought J.J. Redick looked fantastic. Uh, you know, he's a guy that obviously has that, uh, you know, he's a consummate professional and uh, always has that great work ethic. So not a surprise that he's looking great, but uh, they even had him playing a little bit of point guard at times in that game and, and didn't even look too, he didn't even look too bad in, in that role. But uh, let's let's move on to the, to the second matchup uh, of opening night, and that was a, a, a L.A. showdown between the Clippers and the Lakers, and of course, Corbin being a Lakers fan, I'm sure you were pleased with the uh, the result, the Lakers getting a 103-101 victory. Oh, you know, I was beyond excited uh, for that for, for the outcome, for the game. It was a tight win down the stretch. The Lakers came out hard. Clippers clawed back. Paul George was electric, and, and Kawhi, uh, troubling, I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit, was still able to get to his spots relatively easily, whether those not, shots went down or not being another thing, but um, I was just mostly impressed, even more than Anthony Davis's ability to continue to be a mismatch for basically any Clipper big who guards him. I like the way that Kyle Kuzma played. You know, 16 points. He had a couple moments where uh, he, he was trying to go one-on-one, ISO to nowhere, to nowhere, no man's land. <laughs> he wasn't doing anything there. But he had uh, some great play all around where he, his shots were of the type that you want for a third piece around LeBron James and Anthony Davis, which is the catch-and-shoot variety. Um, he played within himself. I think he played very good defense against uh, Kawhi after getting burnt early um, and Paul George. And, and I think, talking about 
Kaku. His his impact here, his impact for the Lakers in this matchup against the Clippers, if he sticks to those strengths, can work. He's uh, surprisingly solid for someone who's had such shot variance in terms of making it, uh, his his threes and whatnot. He's been surprisingly solid on his catch and shoot uh, threes and, and catch and shoot shots, and so that's something you can go to on the offensive and on the defensive end. You know, he has a tendency to get easily knocked away from bigger, um, stronger players or shaken easier by, by smaller, quicker players. But Paul George and Kawhi are both players who move at a, at a, at a pace that when Kuzma's more locked in, he can stay with. You know, it is two separate types of, of paces for each. And it's not, oh, I'm going to blister you off the screen. Although both can move. Kawhi definitely is somebody who likes to, you know, bump his way down to the low post area. You know, he'll use some ball screens to get into the middle lane, but he's someone who moves at a more deliberate pace. And Paul George, the same thing. So Kuzma's defense, when he's engaged, can actually help to force some of those guys into tougher shots. Yes, they're still all-world wings, so it's not like he's going to stop them. But they can definitely make it tougher. He can definitely make it tougher for both of them. Um, and in this case, both got their numbers, 30 for George, 28 for Kawhi. I mean, that, that's not exactly limiting them, but he did enough that he wasn't a net negative on that end, and he made enough shots on the offensive end that he was a positive. And, and ultimately, that, that proved the difference in a game that was defined by who wasn't there as much as it was defined by who was. Absolutely. Yeah, he was he was great, uh, in particular in the in the second half. I, th- I thought in the first half he, he was struggling a little bit, kind of playing like the, the Kyle Kuzma of old, where just jacking shots and, and kind of just hijacking the offense at times. And, and really... Uh, you know, you can tell when when Kuzma's got the blinders on that he just there's no chance he's going to make a pass. Uh, but but uh, yeah, the second half it, it was a lot better. You know, still you know, still being his aggressive uh, self on offense, but doing it more in the flow of the offense, making a pass. You know, the extra pass when it's there, uh, and and as you said, uh, when when he is actually committed. Uh, on on the defensive end, he does have the size and and some of that athleticism to to be effective, and uh, the Lakers are going to need that from him. And and yeah, he uh, he on on several occasions did did a really good job defending Kawhi Leonard. Although Kawhi, it looked like especially uh, just you know in his mid range game, he looked like he uh, was was just a, a centimeter or a fraction short on a lot of those shots. And and that to me just is a matter of him getting his legs. And and some players are just you know, like Kawhi are just good enough that, uh, you know, you can play good defense, but sometimes it's just up to them whether they make or miss. Uh, but yeah, uh, definitely a, a positive sign for the Lakers. I was also really impressed with how Dion Waiters looked, you know, not only just, um, you know, just from a physical perspective, it looks like he's in decent shape. You know, when he initially was signed with the Lakers, he looked like he needed to lose a few pounds. Uh, but uh, he he looks good and and he looked good out there. He had a beautiful spin move at one point. Uh, had decent elevation on that jump shot. Yeah, Waiters. The fact that he's out there and uh, you know is a is a really good sign. And of course, the Lakers without Avery Bradley, they really needed an additional guard. You know, you you don't uh, probably want to be playing Alex Caruso thirty five minutes. Uh, so. So, uh, yeah, the way Waiters looked, I think, is, you know, if you're a Lakers fan, you've got to be very optimistic about that. And I think in particular against this Clippers team, uh, you know, not again, not suggesting that Deion Waiters is a better basketball player than Avery Bradley, but his ability to create some offense and, and create some shots for himself, 
I think might actually be a better fit in this particular matchup because, again, as you saw at the end of this game, LeBron is going to be tasked with doing and expending a decent amount of energy on the defensive end to slow the likes of Kawhi and George down. So expecting him to do that plus take over every possession offensively is a bit much, and, and maybe Dion can take a little bit off his plate. Yeah, and that's going to be big. Like you said, his skill set doesn't make him a better player than Avery Bradley, but it makes him a better player right now for the Lakers than Avery Bradley would in terms of, yes, defensively, you know, other players, you mentioned LeBron and others, going to have to step up so their offense may be sad. But you have someone who is a, a ready-made uh, offensive initiator, both at the point of attack, making shots for himself, um, being a very decent initiator, creating some shots for others, um, and someone who's bringing the ball up with, with the threat to score, with the eye to score. You know, you have other guards, Alex Caruso, Raj and Rondo, um, Casey Pre brings the ball up in spots, and they're not guys who can get to their own shot as readily, nor are they really dynamic playmakers. And Waiters isn't one either in terms of a dynamic playmaker, but he is someone who can get himself a, a, a very good shot-making ability, or at least shots that are good for him. You know, whether that is, he had a couple where he would take a, a down screen and, and pull up for a jumper. That other guards would just, just not what they would do on the Lakers. So you have someone who can get hot in a hurry, who is still, I mean, he's 28, he's still in his prime in terms of another guard on the Lakers in, in J.R. Smith, who's a little past that and really kind of more of the catch-and-shoot variety in, in, in limited minutes. But Deion Waiter, Waiters can be a boost for the Lakers in that he provides kind of what is needed from the guard spot for them. Um, and it is different. A lot of their offensive initiation comes from LeBron, so it is a little normal in the sense that you have a, a platoon of 3 and D guards um, that kind of make up that point guard role nominally. But in Deion Waiters, although he has a shooting guard, he's someone who can be that guy in minutes off the bench, be that guy who can play alongside LeBron, serves well enough on defense, and, and you're right, he's gotten in a little bit better shape. He, you know, he's called Philly Cheese, he was eating a lot of Philly Cheese beforehand, and now you know, he's a little bit, little bit uh, better in, in that way. So, um, really excited to see. I was anxious for its impact before the league went to a stoppage, um, to see how he would look, and, and you know, so far, early returns are, are pretty positive. Now, as far as the, the Clippers go, I, I'm curious to get your take on, you know, is this you know, would, would you look at this game and the fact that now the Clippers have lost a couple in a row to the Lakers and, and uh, you know, you, you, all, you always have to wonder, okay, are they are the Lakers now in the Clippers' head, that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, would you be concerned about this loss if you're the Clippers or is it as simple as, you know, Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell, two of their best, you know, five or six guys were not there? Uh, they still were very competitive. They were plus 16 in Kawhi Leonard's 33 minutes. He was on the floor. So, yeah, would you be concerned if you're the Clippers? Or, yeah, is it is it just one of those things where, yeah, it's the, it's the first game of the restart. They lost by two. Nothing to worry about. I, I tend to tend trend more toward the latter on that one. I'm not having your second and third or your third and fourth uh, leading scores is hard um, for anyone. Um, even if both have weaknesses, I'd love to have seen the Lakers attack Lou Williams more. Um, you know, had he been on the floor, just knowing where he is and, and also seeing that as, as decent as Montrezl Harrell has been, he's another guy who can join the line of Clipper Biggs who cannot defend Anthony Davis. So I don't know how big a difference that would have been. Um, it would have been more for the Clippers' um, um, advantage, to be sure. But I don't take too much away from it. I think one thing to look at is just how thin the Clippers can be um, after you get past Kawhi, Paul George, and then Montrez and the Williams in terms of guys who, you know, can create offense and put the ball in the hoop. You have guys who in theory can, but I think uh, I think 
was reading that Marcus Morris has yet to hit a shot against uh, the Lakers in either of their matchups. And LeBron James shows absolutely no trepidation or fear of uh, <laughs> of Morris on him at all. And honestly, I tended to think that when he first got signed, just a brief aside, I was like, everyone's like, oh, he's another guy. I'm like, yeah, he's another guy, and that's great. But, I mean, you saw what he did against LeBron in Boston. You saw what he did against LeBron in Detroit. Like, like he's never, he's just another guy size-wise who can say, okay, can stick LeBron. He's not a LeBron stopper by any stretch of imagination. He's not even someone like a like a Harrison Barnes or Andre Godala platoon that they used to run against LeBron back in the Warriors. Like, I, I didn't get all the hype about it. Um, at the same time, going about going back to him, he hasn't been someone who has been of any benefit to the Clippers offensively against the Lakers. Um, his negative attributes is stopping the ball a lot when he does have it. And like I said, he hasn't made a shot against them. Reggie Jackson had a great start, um, but I think it's pretty clear that he's no longer a starting level point guard in terms of how uh, sustainable that play was. By the end of it, he was just straight up unplayable and really was the closest Clipper to LeBron when he went over all five of them for that uh, go-ahead, put-back bucket. And and Pat Beverly, the variance is there. I mean, he's a very solid scorer, but he was just getting his legs under him as well. And I don't think he's that guy you're going to look at as like your, your consistent third or fourth best player, uh, uh, third or fourth, fourth best scorer on the team. So that would be me, and that's me doing the matrix stretch all the way around to say, okay, that this might be something that the Clippers can be worried about. But then again, in the playoffs, minutes increase for the stars, the bench, uh, the minutes decrease, you know, you're playing your best guys more, and at the end of the day, that, that says a lot. So I, I, basically, that's my roundabout way of walking myself back into saying this. That was my roundabout way of saying that, no, um, you know, the Clippers right now, they're, they're pretty good. I think that it just shows, again, this is going to be a tough game. Uh, a tough series because the Lakers won both all games have been within 10 points the Lakers won the last one with Montrez and Lou Williams there and you know this one they were that way Avery Bradley and that would have made a difference as well so you know I think all of it all in all it just averages out to a really tough uh, seven game series that we can hopefully look forward to in September yeah speaking to Marcus Morris uh, you know we, we talked about this when we did the the 22 team tiers we got into the whole Marcus Morris debate and and uh, yeah, you know he uh, that that stat you were referencing. Yeah, I think he's over ten. I saw that on on Twitter as well. I think he's over ten against the Lakers on threes, and they were all considered at least open, uh, two wide open looks. Uh, and and on those shots for the season, he's shooting like I, I think it was around forty one to forty two percent on those opportunities. So uh, yeah, there 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 might be a bit of just like small sample size there, a bit of randomness that he just hasn't knocked them down against the Lakers, and that that would that would uh, you know come back to uh, to normalcy over the course of a seven game series. Uh, but but yeah, they're uh, you know he scared the Lakers, man. That's all. Just, just face it, he scared the Lakers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, speaking to his defense, he looked a little bit sluggish, as as a lot of the Clippers did, of course. Patrick Beverly and, and Zubac, I believe, both uh, had to leave the bubble at various times, so, so they weren't fully up to speed, and neither of them looked particularly good. Um, obviously, Morris missed all those shots. I will say, speaking to his defense on LeBron, prior to that putback, I, I thought it was very good D from Morris on that last possession where he cut LeBron off. LeBron kind of just threw it up trying to draw a foul, but I thought it was solid defense from from Morris, and uh, it just ha- so happened that the Clippers had five guys between the basket and LeBron, and the ball bounced right back to uh, to LBJ. Uh, I mean, I, I, I tend to look at some of that. I still think you have five guys around it. Yeah, he shouldn't be the, I mean, closest on the ball is the guy who knows the shots there, but 
the way that he was there, I feel like someone on the Clippers actually good, just by sheer number-wise. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's, I can see if you're right. Like, he just happened to bounce his way. But, again, five Clippers in the vicinity. Like, not in the vicinity, like, on the court, because obviously, but, like, literally in the vicinity. Like, in that way, if it bounced around a couple times, yeah, but I don't know. I, I choose to look at that as some more of, yeah, I guess it was a bounce that went his way, but better effort from LeBron over at least two Clippers that could have gotten that. Yeah, um, and, and another thing, speaking to the absence of, of Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell, you know, Doc Rivers has at times gone with lineups with no Kawhi Leonard or, or Paul George, and when Lou Will and, and Harrell are out there, you can kind of get away with that because you have a semblance of of uh, an offense that you can go to with that, uh, with that pick and roll that those two bench stars can employ. Um, but uh, without them, you know, Doc still at, at uh, you know at a time in this game went with uh, and put Kawhi and Paul George both on the bench, and you're just thinking, well, what the hell can can a uh, a lineup without as, as you said their their top four scores? What what are they supposed to do offensively? Um, yeah. So so that was an interesting thing from Doc. You you know I, I understand the idea that we don't want to. Um, we want to keep doing the same rotations, assuming that when things uh, are important, we'll have everybody available. But at the same time, you know, for this in, for this game in particular, can't you just stagger Kawhi and PG because you don't have Lou Will off the bench? You would think. Again, it's another questionable one. Looking at two vets and, and Alvin Gentry and Doc Rivers who are making coaching decisions that, for better or for worse, usually for worse, are ones that can be easily rectified. Like, I don't understand how one offensive fulcrum on there alongside serviceable shooters and you have the personnel to have that and just stagger them back and forth. I think the one difference between both um, and probably the way that didn't work out that way was just because, um, you know, Paul George was battling foul trouble. And so I, I would think that that would make uh, somewhat of an impact in terms of how many minutes he was going to be able to play and just having him sit out. And so with him being out and Kawhi going on his rest as well, having some moments in the game or some minutes in the game where you had neither. But, um, with that being said, I, I still think that there was still a better way to do it. And I, I think he even brought Paul George in a little early with three fouls. So if that was the case, bring Kawhi out and, and, and work it back the opposite way um, when Paul George wants a break. Right. Um, but yeah, I guess the, uh, the only other takeaway I had from this game uh, was that, and I agree with you that it's not really anything I think the Clippers should be too concerned about. Um, but uh, I, I do think there was an element of, LeBron James defending Kawhi when LeBron is locked in uh, is, a, is a decent matchup because LeBron has that strength. Kawhi oftentimes will, uh, will use his strength to just kind of play bully ball at times. But then the other thing is Kawhi is such a lethal mid-range shooter that uh, you know he can often use that pump fake to get guys off their feet. And LeBron's such an, uh, such an intelligent player out there. And also I think he just trusts his size and length that he never has to leave his feet on those plays so he doesn't fall for those pump fakes I also noticed LeBron was was shading Kawhi to go to his left hand which Kawhi is not quite as comfortable driving left as he is right something that we saw the Milwaukee Bucks do in the Eastern Conference Finals uh, was was forced Kawhi consistently to his left but uh, yeah one thing I thought was interesting was LeBron seemed to do a decent job in that one-on-one matchup um, but but the other thing that uh, another potential dot coaching error is that set at the end of the game with the, Cl- with the Clippers down two they run a they run a play that that doesn't really have a ball screen to get LeBron off of Kawhi Leonard 
And uh, then Kawhi went one-on-one, didn't go anywhere. He threw it back to Paul George. LeBron switched on to him and uh, was able to contest a, a, a difficult three-point attempt, and, and it was game over. Yeah, and I liked uh, credit to LeBron for staying on you know, Kawhi as intently as he did to force him to stop the ball because um, for most of the previous matchups, Kawhi still has that quickness factor. LeBron is somewhere in the vicinity, but Kawhi's feints have had LeBron shook ever so slightly that it takes him out of rhythm and gets um, Kawhi where he needs to go. I thought they shut it down very capably. I thought that Kawhi um, could have gotten to a spot that he wanted with the time permitting, um, and he was dead set on doing that. LeBron took him out of that, had to get the ball to Paul George, which was not Kawhi's intention, and then that, that made it a little bit tougher. So, uh, I mean, great defense and great contest by then. Yeah, like, people are going to obviously go down and zero in on that one defensive matchup. And, and yes, that was a great one. But um, I think the, the initial stop of Kawhi made it possible to force a red-hot George into taking a shot a little farther than he would have wanted. And that's another thing I wanted to point out. With LeBron's sense of timing, he was able to blitz on that pass to Paul George to force him back a couple of dribbles, force him to retreat a couple of dribbles further than he would have liked with two seconds left in the game, then when he had to pull up, he was still just starting off bounce because he was trying to get a little closer, and he was drifting to the side. And I thought that that initial um, hard hedge kind of made the difference in Paul George being just a little out of rhythm off of the pass from Kawhi. Yeah. One, one thing that was that was interesting to me, you mentioned Anthony Davis and, and the fact that the Clippers didn't have much to match up with him. It felt the same way in terms of the Lakers trying to defend Paul George and and both uh, you know both Davis and George I think were kind of considered the Robins going into uh, to this season to to LeBron James and Kawhi being the Batman, but uh, you know with how healthy George looks with the the the, the uh, four months or so that he's had time to recover fully from those shoulder surgeries or recover more I should say from those shoulder surgeries and then Anthony Davis out there just uh, killing anyone that was guarding him. Perhaps it's uh, it's it's going to be less uh, you know uh, a Batman and Robin situation and more just kind of game to game. You might see any one of those four being the best guy on the court. Yeah, and, and that's another thing. You're right. It, each one with that. I don't want to say versatility, but um, I'm losing the word. Man, I'm losing exactly what I'm trying to say here. The variancy of like either one or either can step up in moments and take over that for a spell, and that's another key differentiator in, in a series uh, and that's what I think we're looking heading to now it almost feels inevitable you know going in into um, into September into the playoffs that these two teams might meet up with each other but the fact that you do have different guys who can step up and take charge at moments is key and moments games and those types make up a series so let's move on to uh, to some of the games that we watched on uh, the second day of the NBA restart on Friday uh, the uh, I know I know we spoke beforehand and you said you didn't catch this one yet and and the only reason I really watched it was because uh, the dunked on guys Nate Duncan and Danny Larue did an alternate broadcast that was actually available on NBA League Pass uh, but the uh, the Nets ended up losing to the Orlando Magic one twenty eight one eighteen but uh, the NBA showing a willingness to to listen to. They've listened to the people wanting alternative broadcast options. And, uh, of course, Nate Duncan and Danny LaRue provide more of an analytical approach. I don't believe any, either of them have uh, have uh, actual broadcast training, but they uh, they did an excellent job in that game, and that was, that was really fun to not only support a couple of guys that I've followed for a long time, but, but uh, yeah, to, uh, to get some, some interesting analysis watching that game. And, 
and uh, I hope that in the future the NBA provides them the opportunity to do some games that uh, actually are compelling and not just uh, you know the the scrap heat type of games that are uh, Nets versus Magic. Yeah, I, I will say I am I am enamored with their ability to even make those games um, temper like exciting. It's based on an extended version of their podcast, which you know you and I are both big junkies of. So. That, that's 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 good. Um, but yeah, give us give us some Lakers Clippers. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> right. That that would be pretty fire. Or or like Bucks Celtics things of that sort. Those games, yeah, you know, I think they have a Spurs Sixers one coming up. That like I'll tune in for sure. Um, you know, I could I could definitely find you a couple more compelling matchups. And in some ways, it's helped that um, you know the eight worst teams are taken out of the bubble. That uh, at least there's a chance of a few more of these games being good. But Nets, uh, the Nets. Uh, Magic one was kind of finding the trash heap of of the creme de la creme of the NBA right now. Right, uh, and yeah, that uh, it ended up being a pretty high scoring affair, and and uh, you know a lot of eyes are on uh, the likes of Karis Levert, given that uh, the Nets don't have they don't have Kyrie or uh, Dinwiddie, and of course Kevin Durant available, so uh, a lot of the offensive load is going to be on. Lavert's shoulders, and, and I thought he did a reasonable job. I mean, they lost this game because they couldn't get stops. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was that was interesting to see. I, I thought he, he did a, a reasonably good job of, uh, of getting into the paint on that pick and roll, keeping the, uh, the, uh, his, his man behind him and, and hitting little floaters and, and drawing in that big man to, to throw the lob then. Uh, to, to Jared Allen. So Lavert, I thought, was, was solid in that role, even if he's uh, a little bit underqualified for, for being a lead ball handler on a team. And, and of course, I, I doubt the Nets are even going to make the playoffs. There's a good chance that uh, the Wizards may pass them. We'll see. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll move on now to a game that both Corbin and I watched, which was the, uh, the Grizzlies and the Portland Trailblazers. This game ended up going to overtime, and the Blazers ended up getting a huge win, taking it 140 to 135. And Corbin, what a final couple of minutes in this ball game with the teams going back and forth. John ja Morant, Jaron Jackson making plays for Memphis. And Damian Lillard driving, drawing the defense, and and finding Carmelo Anthony, who ended up being the hero, especially to to uh, to get Portland to the overtime. Carm- Carmelo Anthony being the hero in twenty twenty is, is something that um, I never thought I'd say. You know, I mean, even a strong uh, a season as he's had in a bounce back year uh, for Portland. Yes, this game was was tight. Another high scoring affair. Another game down to the wire. Um, unsung heroes. You mentioned Carmelo Anthony. With that big shot, uh, three of his uh, 21 points. Um, McCollum was huge. Poor uh, Damian Lillard, as always. And this was a game, a uh, desperately needed one, that uh, Portland was able to pull. And, and mind you, uh, Anthony Three, like you said, down the stretch, was with 37 seconds left in the game. Um, and, and just after that, Morant uh, fell in the last second fast break, which enabled the game to go to overtime. And then uh, right from there, back-to-back-to-back-to-back threes. It felt like uh, McCollum hit one. I know Gary Trent hit one. I think McCollum hit a couple more, and and that was uh, what the Pelicans, not the Pelicans, wow, that's what the Blazers used to build that margin. Even then, you know, the Grizzlies cut it a little bit, um, the final margin of the score being quite close, but they couldn't get any closer than three. Yeah, the Blazers nearly blew, as you mentioned, I think they had uh, a double-digit lead in overtime, nearly blew it with a couple of turnovers down the stretch of the uh, extra session. 
but uh, able to hang on. Uh, the, 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 the big thing that I was very excited about to see with the Blazers is how does Yusuf Nurkic and Zach Collins look? Uh, the, a couple of guys that uh, Nurkic, of course, missed the whole year, uh, and, and he, uh, he suffered a devastating leg injury near the end of last season. And then Collins having that shoulder injury pretty early on in the 2019-20 campaign. So uh, those guys are both back and, and starting for the Blazers. Corbin, how'd you how'd you think they looked? Oh, uh, you know what? Each had their moments. I, I am just happy that both are, are fully healthy in general. But um, for both, you can see a little some rust there. Um, Nurk is a lot more efficient than Zach Collins, who um, now he's just been struggling to get back, but also fouled out. He's you know foul trouble's been a, a problem for him in general. But um, Nurkic uh, has, was okay. I. Liked he had some forceful dunks that were pretty big, really making himself known then. Um, again, picking up some of that chemistry, some of that passing with uh, uh, with Lillard, I, I think even more so with McCullum that I noticed, um, as if they never left that, that give-and-go uh, password. That was just kind of crazy to see. So I, I thought that was I, – I enjoyed um, both of them. I think the more important thing for me was just being happy that you have a team now that's all together, it's all healthy, it's all in. You know what I mean? And that – and that is cool. But um, both of them shaking off the rust. Uh, what's funny, as we're talking now, I'm watching them again. Uh, I continue to shake off the rust. Uh, uh, Zach Collins again, uh, foul trouble being an issue. But I actually was really a lot more excited about the play of uh, Gary Trent Jr., who has really settled in, you know, coming off the bench, but being more of the optimal 3 and D guard for the, for the Blazers. Yeah, I mean, uh, Trent Jr. started picking up his play at the start of the new year. I thought he was was pretty good the last couple of months prior to the shutdown. Uh, but uh, yeah, he seems to be a very promising player when he's locked in. Uh, he is uh, he is very good, especially one on one defending in, a, in a, an isolation. And he had a couple of impressive plays shutting down Morant. He had one impressive block where he got called for a uh, questionable technical foul after he was kind of celebrating to himself and the refs were uh, were quick to pull the trigger on the technicals in that game for sure uh but uh yeah Trent Jr. was good I was very impressed with how Nurkic looked I mean I I thought athletically he he looked pretty good out there and as you mentioned the skill level that he has just uh, absolutely makes uh, Hassan Whiteside seem like uh you know, uh, a nobody out there. It was, uh, to me, a, a big upgrade for the Blazers to get Nurkic in there at center, bring Whiteside off the bench. Uh, they even played some some Whiteside-Nurkic combo lineups at the four and the five. I'm not too high on those, uh, but, uh, but Nurkic at the five I thought looked good. And yeah, Zach Collins still has those foul issues, but just having that secondary rim protector as well out there on the floor at the fourth spot uh, that still can can also stretch the floor on offense has some 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 value for the Blazers. So yeah, I uh, I think those two guys are going to help the Blazers in this restart. Help them try to uh, to at least get into the play-in game and, and and potentially beat Memphis from there. But but just getting this result is huge because that brought the Blazers within two and a half games and and uh, gave them a little bit of breathing room. As you mentioned, they're they're we're recording this as they're playing the Boston Celtics and they're getting clobbered. You want a live update on that one? Sure. Uh, they clawed back. They were down by, what, 20? I think as much as 23. And they've made it now an eight-point game. Okay, so so maybe it's not over yet. But uh, even in the event that they... Fourth. Yeah, even in the event that they, they lose to Boston, just getting that win against Memphis gave them a little breathing room and uh, gave them a really good 
shot at uh, at at least getting into the play-in. The the one thing for me, and and I've I've had a problem watching him all season. Of course, uh, I, I've done my season reruns for the uh, the the Rip City Project on the Fan Sided Network, and every game, game after game that I uh, I end up watching, I keep saying, "Why is Mario Hazonia in the NBA? Uh, this guy is." <laughs> Is, uh, you, is, don't, you don't subscribe to the Church of Azonia? No, I do not. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, if I had any, if I had any stock in Hazonia Island, I have sold it a long time ago. Uh, the uh, the guy is not good, and and for some reason, despite the uh, the fact that they've got uh, they, they've got Nurkic and Collins back, he's still playing some minutes. Uh, I, I don't really I, get it. I have to interject while we start talking about this. I was watching, maybe it was the Grizzlies game. Maybe it might have been a different stream. I think it was the Grizzlies game. But anyway, um, they had interviewed his own. He's like, yeah, man, you know, with all this change and everything, I've had to be, I've had to be so many different things for this team. You know, I've had to be, you know, the offensive initiator, you know, one of the, the main defenders, you know, I've had to go in different roles for them. And, you know, I've been able to do that. And I'm happy that with the team back and kind of, I can kind of go back to my own role. And I was like, wait, wait you were, you were what? You did what? <laughs> like, what games did you do this that I missed? You know, that's what I wanted to ask you is, as you were the guy that, you know, with the Rip City Project and everything, have you, have you thought of, uh, uh, and I, I guess I kind of know the answer to this, but have you thought of um, of Mario Zonia as somebody that's taken different roles and is such a versatile player for this Blazers team that's gone through so much this season? Is that something that you've experienced from your own point of view? I mean, it's... Uh... It's important that we mention that, yeah, that was his quote because in his mind he's doing those things. Uh, you know, he, he's uh, he you know he'll go in transition and take on three defenders in a one on three and and throw up a shot that that doesn't uh, try to attempt a layup that doesn't even hit the rim. Um, the 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 thing with Hazonia that is so frustrating. Obviously, he was a former top five pick. He's got uh, he's got some athleticism. He's got a, a decent shooting stroke. It's the simple things that he so often screws up, you know, whether to throw a chest pass or a bounce pass. You know, he'll he'll catch the ball in the right wing and he'll have a two-on-one with a teammate in the corner and he'll try to throw a chest pass to the guy in the corner and the defender that is rushing out to him just deflects it out of bounds, you know, and, and ruins that chance. You know, he'll he'll blow wide open layups. He'll have a he'll have a transition opportunity, the guy'll throw him the ball and he'll just bobble the pass out of bounds. You know, it's it's a lot of just the real simple stuff that you more often than not take for granted that Hazonia just can't get right. Yeah, I mean, especially looking back on how, you know, where he was drafted and everything, it's kind of shocking. I'm glad that he's able to at least attempt to find a way, but, uh, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been interesting. Let's, let's, uh, let's putting it lightly. Uh, and the fact that he's on a roll where, you know, he's, he's, that's just not his, that's not his place is, is, um, uh, it's interesting. That's all I'm going to say. I'm, I, I never want to say a guy doesn't want to be in the NBA or whatever the case may be, but he's for someone playing the minutes that he's playing and, and the role he's in, let's just say it's not optimal for him. Yeah. Uh, the, um, the Speaking of the Grizzlies, I mean, John Morant and Jaron Jackson both looked terrific. And, and can I just say, if we do get a play-in of these two games, or of these two teams, boy, oh boy, is that going to be exciting to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, I mean... The matchups, the play style, the, I mean, looking at the guards, the bigs, the, it's so much there. That would be very fun to see. Um, and, and I would look forward to it, just just in general. Also, looking at, and this is another random thought, but the Spurs and Grizzlies are playing, and I've seen the Spurs on uh, their last game. Looking at the way that Pops has been playing these young guys and the way they've been responding so far, 
I don't know if I wouldn't be off on the Spurs either. You mean you mean uh, the Spurs potentially still having a shot at getting into the play-in? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're hanging. T- they, I mean, they had a good, like, right now with their own teams where they're at. They've been playing okay. Now, would I want to see them make the playoffs? I, I don't know. Uh, maybe for just history's sake and being nostalgic as I am, and Pop being able to get back through. Yeah, and yeah, it's kind of insur- insurmountable for the Spurs are, but like, I mean, they're hanging tough. They're hanging tough. I mean, they're. Four games out in the Grizzlies, and they're beating the Grizzlies right now in the third quarter. They had a good one against the Kings. A life of the young lad they've been playing with some of the younger guys, or Pop said they're doing it for development, but also, ironically, it happens to work in their favor. <laughs> like, it's weird how, you know, we're, gonna, we're just kind of focused on development, but hey, we're actually winning and playing well with DeMar DeRozan and a bunch of young guys. Yeah, and I mean, uh, technically the Spurs, uh, as we're talking here, have uh, one less loss than the... Uh, than the Trailblazers do, so yeah, they um, uh, if 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 they keep winning, yeah, they they've got a shot at, at sneaking into that nine spot. Uh, it'll be it'll be fascinating to see. Yeah, I, I hope that there's some sort of race and we get some 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 meaningful games even prior to a potential play-in game. It'd be fun if we get a play-in even prior to the play-in, essentially. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, the final face-off before the. Yeah, it's gonna be one of those Grizzlies Pelicans games, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but uh, yeah, was there anything else about that uh, that Grizzlies Blazers game that uh, that you had on your notes before we we move on to the next one? Um, no, I, I, that, that was the first overtime game of note. I was happy to see Carmelo again. I wrote still playing key minutes and making an impact. Um, and aside from that, this was a, a series or a playing tournament uh, matchup that I would just greatly enjoy. So that, that's all I had on that. Absolutely. So uh, let's talk about the Celtics versus the Bucks. This was uh, this was a fascinating game. The the Bucks got off to a seventeen to two start, but then the Celtics uh, slowly crawled back into this one. But uh, the Bucks eventually took it one nineteen to one twelve, and you know this could just be a matter of uh, you know the guy just missing shots. But Jason Tatum was incredibly poor in this one. And uh, you, you've got to wonder as well, you know, you, you talk about his play this season. He kind of got off to a, a sluggish start and then really picked it up prior to the shutdown for the last couple of months. But uh, th- that's another thing that's fascinating about this restart and the fact that we've got essentially two weeks of regular season games and then we're into the playoffs is you have certain players that kind of, uh, you know, get off to sluggish starts to begin seasons. And it, and it takes them a couple of months to really get into things. You know, I, I think one of the examples of that I've always noticed is Eric Gordon. It always seems like he is really terrible at the start of the season, but then slowly gets better as it goes. Um, but uh, Jason Tatum might be another one of those players. And, uh, you know, that uh, if, if the first game is any indication, uh, the, the Celtics might have a, a reason for concern.
just off my own initial observations, again, I hate to bring up a game that's currently on, dating it as we go, but um, I kind of have to just because Tatum's had a bounce-back performance uh, in this game so far. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, he, he's just uh, been electric, uh, 26 already. Uh, rhythm, shots, everything. Also, it's a tight game. But the point being, um, you would hope for a lot of these guys that you're in situations where, let's face it, you can't afford to be in a slump. You can't afford to be in a spot where you, um, you, 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 you're kind of starting off sluggish because that, that's just not going to do it for, for you moving forward. The Pelicans right now, we talk about the Minnesota Zion. There's certain things right now with the truncated schedule and where you're at that it's just very, very key that you kind of come out all barrels loaded, guns blazing, you know, I don't use another gun reference, but you know what I mean, fired up and ready to go. But the importance, uh, again, of these teams find their rhythm is that, you know, time is not on anyone's side. For teams trying to get into the playoffs, for players, uh, for teams trying to uh, secure favorable first-round matchups, uh, it is important to come out from the gate ready to go. And so with Tatum, you hope that uh, he can do just that, keep it going and, and, and kind of bust out of the slump because the Celtics cannot afford to have it from a player of his caliber. Yeah, and, and speaking to the guy I mentioned that I, I've noticed has, has kind of struggled out of the gate, Eric Gordon, you know, he twisted his ankle and uh, is, is out for, I think, uh, close two to weeks. 10 days or, yeah, two weeks for the Rockets. So he's going to be coming back basically right when the playoffs are starting. So he's not going to be able to afford, and the Houston Rockets are not going to be able to afford Eric Gordon to be, you know, coming out slow from the get-go, he's going to have to be playing at his best right away, which might be a, a tall uh, ask there. Uh, but, but yeah, the, um, the the interesting thing from, from Milwaukee's perspective, I noticed a lot more of, you know, and, and obviously the Celtics have a, a versatile defense. They do a lot of switching because they have a lot of liked-sized players especially with the likes of, of, of Hayward, Smart, Brown, Tatum. They've got four wings that can guard a lot of different guys. Uh, the, the Bucks against those switches, threw Giannis the ball on the post a lot more than I can remember them doing prior to this, uh, this NBA postponement. And uh, it, was, it was relatively effective, in, in, in part because I think the Celtics overreacted to a few of, of Giannis's turnaround jumpers on the block and fouled him. Uh, but uh, that was that was something that was was notable to me was that uh, Giannis is is posting up a little bit more. Yeah, I, well, Giannis, man, uh, I have thoughts on him after that Celtics game. But yeah, I like that they're playing him through through the post more. He's the second front court player in the Eastern Conference to have uh, somewhat of a role change, uh, the other being Ben Simmons and moving from point guard to power forward in, in the way that he did. So I, I do. Um, I do like the play style. It's an interesting quirk. I think it does take advantage of uh, the advantage that he has over the Celtics in particular, but a lot of guys where, yeah, he can just stride past them and then go to the basket. He's also taller and, and in most cases, stronger than them as well. So use that to your advantage. Conserve some of your energy. You're going to be playing longer minutes down the stretch and just take care of business down there, young man. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, perhaps it is more of a, uh, as opposed to a change in the in the Bucks style of play, more just a, a matchup dependent sort of thing where against the Celtics, maybe they'll they'll post him up more. He also was uh, was the actual on ball screener at times quite frequently, and I know a lot of people have have said you know to uh, and suggested that Mike Budenholzer should should uh, let Giannis be the screener and, and let him roll because he has got to be one of the most terrifying role men I can think of in the NBA. Uh, 
So uh, yeah, that was uh, that was interesting. I thought most of the of the Bucks personnel looked pretty good out there. Brooke Lopez was uh, doing his part in in blocking off the rim like he's done all season long. Uh, the likes of Dante Divincenzo, I thought he looked good out there. He had one where he he did a behind the back step back and and uh, sent Kemba Walker to the floor. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the, you know, Chris Middleton looked good out there. He had a bunch of shots that kind of rimmed, rimmed in and out, but he looked like he was, uh, playing well. Uh, so yeah, from, from a Bucks perspective, I thought it was all pretty positive and, and, uh, outside of, of Tatum having a poor shooting night, I, I thought the Celtics looked reasonably good also. Yeah, they didn't shoot from the field particularly well. I think that was something that was, that was, um, rough and I actually have, um, the numbers I just put on my dock here a little bit, that they weren't uh, especially great at converting. And a lot of that, like you said, had to do with Tatum. And one of those shots being one that was credited to him um, when it really bounced between Giannis and Wes Matthews into the basket off, off of a Kyrie into the uh, rebound. And it just got credited to Tatum because he was closest to the basket. Right, uh, and that uh, and that 17-2 to start for the Bucks that I referenced, that too was that, uh, that uh, accidental tap-in that you just mentioned. Exactly. But... The Celtics in general, I mean, you just hope that they aren't as cold as they were. They were 37 for 91 from the field, uh, 11 for 37 from three, but they kept earning trips to the line, and that kept making things uh, tight and kept it close for Boston in this game. And so you hope, you know, obviously Tatum's not going to shoot two for 18, or you hope that he doesn't have a sustained performance like that again, where shots just go down. And with that being the case, fine, they do that. They get to the line as, uh, you know, as much as they did, but in general, and some more three-point shots fall. You know, a lot of that probably coming down to variance. Um, shots that go down, shots that don't. And the Celtics were honestly just cold in general. And so the hope there being that, yeah, all things considered, not a, a lot of major takeaways to, to go from there. And the fact that even on a team where Giannis can still kind of get wherever he wants, you know, um, you were still able to play him reasonably well. And it took a couple of close calls and a very questionable uh, foul, no foul, charge, no charge, about a minute 28 left to, to, to finally kind of cement a loss, and even then, you were kind of still in the ballpark, if you're Boston. Yeah, and and I think a big thing for the Celtics, especially in that matchup, is the presence of Kemba Walker, and of course Kemba on the minutes limit to start this restart, but if the Celtics were to match up against the Bucks, the, the result of that series is going to be a lot on Kemba's shoulders because he's the one guy for Boston. I guess I shouldn't say the one guy, but he's the best guy for the Celtics in terms of those pull-up threes uh, against that drop-back defense that the Bucks like to employ. So, uh, yeah, the fact that he was on a minute limit, I think, prevented the Celtics from having much of a chance to begin with. But in a playoff series, he's going to be crucial for them. So uh, it's it's vitally important that they make sure he's healthy and, and good. And, and I thought in the minutes that he was out there, he, he did look fine. Yeah, very solid uh, couple minutes there. And, and you're right, that, that's going to be another key swinging piece. And there's a few. This will be a great match again. We talked about Grizzlies and uh, Blazers for, for that play-in tournament. I would like to see a Celtics-Bucks uh, matchup. Second round possible. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, Gordon Hayward, I thought he, he looked spry out there. You know, again, I think, uh, yeah, the, the idea that, uh, you know, people think, well, he's now, he's now as good as he will be. But again, I think the further out from that, uh, from those surgeries that he had after that catastrophic injury on, on opening day of, what was it, 2017 or 2018 against the Cavs, um, yeah, 2017, right? Yeah, I think so. I think that's right. Um, but uh, no, the, no, no, 18. You said 18 because it was with Dwayne Wade. 
Yeah, so uh, the, the further out you are away from that uh, that 2018 incident and that 2018, those surgeries that he had, that maybe the, he's just going to continue to look healthier and healthier. Uh, so, so that was a positive sign. I thought he looked good. He had, he had one drive where he, he did a reverse lay-in, and it didn't go, but just seeing him leap up into the air and, and hang in the air as well, I was like, okay, that, that, looks, that, that looks pretty nice. So uh, let's let's talk about uh, the Dallas Mavericks versus the Houston Rockets game. This was a this was a wild one. The Rockets ended up taking it in overtime, one fifty three to one forty nine. But uh, the the first thing that came to mind, obviously, both of these teams are elite offensive units. But the first thing that came to my mind when watching this contest and. and maybe you'll disagree, is that neither of these teams are good enough defensively to compete for a championship. I mean, it was atrocious, the uh, the defense on display there. Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I, in theory, I like Houston. And it's crazy to think that because their priority is not on the defensive end. But you're right. Watching that was, was almost... I mean, it was more of the game I liked than you, so I think maybe some of that might be impacted the fact that that's not the type of game you're really into at up and down. But even for myself, that was a lot. Like, you <laughs> saying I like, uh, you know, and you're like, hey, you know, I like it in moderation. Nah, I could like a healthy amount of sugar. Even then, that's like where you get just too much sugar in your lemonade or too much in your cake, whatever the case may be, that it, it, it's good, I guess, but really not so much. That's how that felt. So I'm with you. I think, honestly, I, I like Houston better just because I think that they can outscore. I think that if it gets to that, they can outscore. Yeah, yeah, you think that it has to be stopped at a certain point, but um, whatever happened at the end of it, the Rockets were down, they came back. So, you know, whatever the case may be, um, if the Rockets were down and, and the Rockets were able to, uh, to to take the lead back, either Dallas got cold, um, ice cold, which I think was some of it, and, and defense kind of ratcheted up a little bit and it got around the gas, another part of it. Um, but I think that that's the recipe for the Rockets. I think that they can do it. But I think a lot of that is because their engine offensively, you know, uh, you could take Russell Westbrook out of the game. You're not stopping hard. And I don't think you could stop the, the pace that they go at. And, uh, you know, honestly, unless you can put the clamps on or just outscore more, which I think the top two LA teams can do, um, I, I, I think that they're a little more competitive. I see a few more things in Dallas than I do with the Rockets. I'm not totally off on them. But l- let me just uh, suffice to agree with you that was a sickening display of uh, any word resembling remotely defense. Yeah, it, it definitely, you know, the, the changing of the, the momentum, the kind of what changed the tide near the end was that Houston did step it up defensively in the last couple of minutes of regulation and into overtime. In particular, I thought Russell Westbrook was uh, was was much more active and influential on the defensive end in those last couple of minutes after being pretty terrible for the first 45 or 46 minutes. Um <laughs> The uh, you know Robert Covington I thought was the the one and only defensive player for the Rockets that showed up for the whole game uh, even though he couldn't hit a shot to save his life uh, and uh, yeah you know also James Harden you know if if anyone out there is suggesting that and 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 I agree with the people that are that are saying that James Harden has improved as a defender 
but I've I've heard people suggest that James Harden is a good defensive player now. And uh, anyone that says that, please, please go watch that basketball game because that guy, especially defending on the perimeter, uh, I counted probably close to, I, I, I guess I lost count, but if I had to guess, there was at least 20 to 25 times where he just got blown off of the dribble and it led to a Dallas bucket. Yeah, and it happened more than a few times where, again, I, I never subscribed. I believe he has some savvy plays that are cool once in a while. I know that I still remember that no-look kind of swipe down um, where they gave up the, on the play and then he went and blocked it or swiped the shot off. But he's, no, he willingly lets him walk to the hoop, literally uncontested, just walk on in. So I, um, I, I don't see that at all. I, I see that being an issue um, moving forward on his end. But you're right, you have guys in theory like a Robert Covington, guys who are at least people who can pretend to defend in the Jeff Green or even Damari Carroll if he ever gets released off the, the bench up the pine. But but yeah, um, he let that happen a lot. And, and Russell Westbrook continues to have these maddening laps of energy in some ways, lack of situational awareness in other ways. I feel in theory and concept, he's a better defender, but then he just utilizes it all at the wrong time. He can be way too aggressive to the point of fouling just ridiculously or he'll overplay easily giving up a backdoor in other ways. In other cases, his energy just kind of laps off and he doesn't get back when he should. In other ways, he doesn't have moments where he is um, aware of, of what's going on as it plays out in front of him. I don't want to rag on my favorite, one of my favorite players, but I mean, he can be uh, just very stressful to watch on the defensive end because he just doesn't all bring it. When he puts it together, and in this game, you know, he was one of the few players who had gas left in the tank to continue to play. He was solid, and, and he made some good moves, and he was there. But in general, it, it was it was an issue. And you're right; when your two best players set the tone in that way, in different ends on defense, it, it, it's kind of, it's kind of hard. It's fortunate that the Rockets are more of a veteran team, but even then, I can see why you'd have trepidation on them being contenders. Yeah, and and the other thing that I think was was uh, blatantly obvious in this one is the minutes. You know, and Dallas was able to to get PJ Tucker in foul trouble, and it wouldn't shock me that uh, you know if if the Rockets were to go up against the Lakers and he's having to deal with the likes of Anthony Davis or, or Javale McGee and Dwight Howard on the boards that that uh, Tucker might get in foul trouble in that series. And as soon as he comes off the floor as well. Uh, and, you know, you're playing Jeff Green. As you said, Jeff Green is probably one of the Rockets' better defensive players, but he his value as a defensive center isn't that strong. Uh, so, you know, those those non-P.J. Tucker lineups just are bleeding points defensively. Uh, and, and, you know, speaking to Dallas, uh, I, uh, you know, they, they defensively are also, you know, it wasn't as much, you know, with Houston, I thought it was more effort-based and just making mistakes, whereas with Dallas, it was a lot of just not having the defensive talent. You know, Luka Doncic was just way too slow for whoever he was guarding. Uh, even Dorian Finney-Smith, who's their quote-unquote stopper, just had no chance defending either Harden or Westbrook. Um, so, so Dallas, yeah, they, um, they certainly are a legitimate offensive team. You know, you talk about outscoring teams. I, I almost like Dallas a little bit more as an offensive team than, than Houston, but I do like Houston a little bit better defensively when they're, when they're dialed in. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I thought Doncic looked great. And I thought Porzingis looked great. I think one of the thing, one of the great takeaways, and, and something to be optimistic, if you're a Mavs fan, 
is that uh, Porzingis looked a lot more comfortable in the mid-range, whereas that's something he's struggled with all season long. But if he all of a sudden is is knocking down those those little post-ups from the free-throw line area where he just shoots over the top, if he's if he's hitting them at a high level, I mean, that 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 takes not only Porzingis's game to to another tier, but also Dallas's offense goes from being the greatest offense of all time to being like truly unstoppable. Yeah, and I think uh, I think it was something I saw on um, trying to remember here, uh, dunked on. Somebody might be listening on dunked on where he went something like six or eleven or eight of eleven from mid range. A lot of his shots, you see, thirty nine points. In my mind, he's hitting you know at least eight or nine threes. You know, because he doesn't get the foul line as much as you'd think. And a lot of this damage seems to come from outside. He tends to rumble to the basket on a pick and roll more than he actually kind of rolls. But when he's as efficient as he was there, and he was just over the top, post fadeaways, things of like that, it is hard to, that they are that much more dynamic of a team, the Mavericks are, and it's that much hard to, um, make, to, to, to stop both of those guys. Trey Burke is another guy. We can't go this podcast without bringing up Trey Burke. I mean, the, there was a concern with, with the Mavericks and not having Jalen Brunson in the bubble, but uh, Trey Burke says, you know what, uh, I don't think anyone's going to be missing Jalen Brunson, and and uh, they really shouldn't if he continues to put performances on like that. The guy, I think, started, what was it, 7 of 7 from 3? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was on fire. He made his first, his, I think he made his first 6, I think? He made it, yeah, or something like that. First 6, first 7, um, ultimately knocked out 8 along with 3 assists. The dude was, the dude was on fire, and, um, it, it was it was it was it was crazy. I mean, I, I I've always liked Trey Burke. Well, no, that's not true. I like Trey Burke ever <laughs> since he bounced from Jet from Utah. Um, kind of a thing for the reclamation project, still trying to find their way and get their rhythm. And I thought he had moments in New York, and you know he didn't quite fit in Philadelphia. But I'm really happy to see him play in in a situational lineup in Dallas that he'll be used. You know, Rick Carlisle has a type that is small guards who can kind of put the ball in the basket, and um, combo guards like that, like Trey Burke, can be utilized best in this way. And I, I like the way that he is here. Yeah, so uh, let's uh, let's talk a little bit. Uh, I haven't watched this game, and, and I'm not sure if you had either, but uh, I did see some of the highlights of the, the Sixers-Pacers game, and the Pacers end up winning that one, which could play a big factor in the seeding uh, co- competition in the Eastern Conference. Of course, the Sixers currently in the sixth spot, and uh, you know there's, there's talks that they may want to try to move up to to get an easier first-round opponent. Right now, the Sixers are scheduled to take on the Celtics, which, uh, you know, some people like that matchup for the Sixers, but obviously I think the Celtics are just a better basketball team than either Indiana or Miami. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that Pacers win on the back of T.J. Warren with 53 points, really huge for, uh, for uh, you know, potentially altering that uh, or, I guess, uh, maintaining the Eastern Conference bracket as it is. And mind you, the game itself was really good. A lot of back and forth, a real tight. Um, TJ Warren bouncing off at, at, as he did, 53 big ones. I was going to reference this in my own little episode that um, that, that was the most out-of-nowhere kind of 53-point or 50-point score, even from someone who's a noted bucket getter like TJ, since like the Corey Brewer to, uh, Tony Delk days. Like, it was it was something solid. But um, yeah, and, and on the game itself, having watched it, a lot of ebbs and flows, a lot of back and forth. It was a really good game, and it really did take um, every bit of TJ Warren's points, including kind of this deep three-pointer to really put the 76ers away for good with like a minute left in the game to really kind of seal the deal there. Um, 
great performance on both squads. Joel Embiid, not to be undone, had a monster game, 41 points, 21 rebounds, a solid game for him. Um, ben Simmons in double digits uh, for the Pacers. Uh, Victor Oladipo seemed to find more of his rhythm with good shots. And, and I, I, I really enjoyed it. You're going to... Watching it back, it, it was something um, of two tough teams. And like you said, you're talking about like the potential uh, implications of whatever possible matches maybe had. But I'm, I'm not going to lie. The Pacers, they were interesting here. I, I liked watching the blueprint there. Of course, you can't rely on or you're not looking uh, at TJ Warren as that type of player. You know, he's not going to be confused with your main guy. But watching Victor Lodipo kind of get his stride, being very impressed with the play of Aaron Holiday at the point, um... It was pretty good. I think the biggest difference and one thing that the Pacers have to watch moving forward is once um, um, they're, uh, as far as their bigs getting into foul trouble uh, being something that was almost an immediate concern for them. Because from what I saw, I mean, Joel Embiid was able to do whatever he wanted, but it really started happening once Miles Turner was um, in foul trouble because then Jakar Sampson came out and the size difference is, 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 is huge in terms of Embiid always being able to find his way to the foul line with, with the shot fake in the post. You know he's good for like six, seven free throws just on a given. But also being able to power his way and just straight up overpower Jakar Sampson or TJ Leaf or, or other Indiana bigs who just frankly aren't up to the task of, of defending someone of his of his nature. Yeah, and, and again, speaking to TJ Warren and and that uh, as you said kind of out of nowhere performance I think I believe his previous career high was 41 uh, but uh, you know they they ran a lot of actions where uh, similar to what Orlando does with Evan Fournier where he starts kind of in the left corner and then runs off an off ball screen catches the ball kind of on the left wing heading downhill towards his right hand and, and Warren has the ability to, to get all the way to the hoop and finish, but he also has great touch on that floater, um, you know, around that he can even hit that out to the 15-foot area. So he was getting a lot of production off of that action. Uh, but then, yeah, as, as you said, hitting some some deep threes, some contested step-back threes, uh, you know, some shots where you're, you're uh, you know, rewinding it going, wow, he, he made that? I mean, it's... Uh, it's incredible that this guy was was considered a non-shooter a couple of years ago and the improvements he's made to not only become to go from being a non-shooter to being a good guy that can just catch and shoot to now being able to hit contested off the dribble attempts. It says a lot to the power of development. It says a lot to the power of of, of you know, clawing back and, and not clawing back, but working on your game and working on your improvement, being someone like you said, just a slasher. Had an inconsistent shot, going back to the lab, remaking it, and becoming someone who, like you said, off the dribble, you know, pull up deep shots, becoming more of a complete player, at least on the offensive end, um, is huge. And, and, you know, I saw a lot of Phoenix uh, Twitter, or not Phoenix Twitter, general Twitter going wild to think that, you know, Phoenix Suns was salary dumping him and whatever the case may be. And I just want to put that to bed real quick. I mean, yes, he was a great player. We all understood that. It sucked, you know. But at the same time, it enabled the Suns to, to acquire a point guard, the first actual real point guard they've had in four seasons, and it gave them the ability to extend uh, Kelly Oubre. So at this point in time, as much as I like T.J. Warren, I'm much higher on Kelly Oubre, uh, offensive and defensive versatility for a roster alongside Mikel Bridges. So I, I think that, you know, the moves, both sides can be winners. It can work out that way. I don't think the Suns are stupid for making that decision. The Suns have already made 
TJ Warren the way they did was a one. Um, I would be more concerned with the move that they did um, getting rid of Josh Jackson and DeAnthony Melton more than I would in terms of TJ Warren. Like, he's a great player, but he was already a bucket getter for Phoenix. Um, those 41 points you mentioned he got in Phoenix, like, it was, it was something that had to happen, and both sides, I think, are getting the dividends from that move. I just wanted to put that to bed. Yeah, my, my only counter to that would be that uh, they may be overpaid for the likes of Rubio and Oubre, uh, that, uh, that, that, that maybe they could have gotten those guys for a little bit less and still held on to Warren. But but yeah, I mean, just the improvement that Warren's made, I don't think anyone could have possibly predicted that. Um, so uh, the, yeah, the, the, the level of player that, uh, that they traded uh, uh, is, is nowhere close to what he is today. I mean, he's made that uh, great of a stride over the course of the last couple of years. But a uh, couple of just general basketball topics I wanted to, to uh, get your thoughts on. First off, the referees, you know, we've seen just a ton of foul calls. I mentioned the, the Portland-Memphis game where we had techs, you know, the referees were, were handing out techs like it was Halloween and handing out candy. It, uh, it's, been, it's been interesting, and of course, each season, you know, we have the NBA with these points of emphasis where they, they focus on certain things that they maybe kind of uh, forgot about or let go more than they wanted to the previous year. <laughs> And I almost wonder if there is an element of that with this restart where the referees are, are really clamping down on things early to, to get that, to set a tone for the, the, the new start of the season. I think so. I think the whistle has been kind of quick in some cases. You saw the foul fest that was Lakers versus Clippers. Um, just like the players, the refs are trying to get their rhythm back um, and get a different product on the floor, and it is a lot different. I know one thing I don't like about the refs is calling a lot of these techs um, strictly in the fact that they can hear the players now than right. where they couldn't. You know what I mean? That's That's been um, kind of frustrating because a lot of the game is based off emotion. If it's not directly taunting, if it's like, you know, to yourself or whatever, yeah, you can hear because nobody else in the building. But I don't think that's more of an indictment on the players because they would have done the same thing had there been fans. That's just more on the refs having to make a point of emphasis to hold their whistle a little bit on some of these texts. And you referenced one already in regards to um, Gary Trent Jr., uh, in, yeah. that, in that Blazers game, and that was a dumb one. And I, you know, there's been a few of them that have happened now that um, you just you just hate to see. So hopefully the refs look at that. But I, I've tended to look at a lot of their their plan improvement as, hey, you know, they're, they're they're trying, they're trying to get their speed, their rhythm back. It is different, you know what I mean? Just just getting uh getting caught up to it all, and and yeah, elements of the game are different, not only for the fans, not only for the players, but also for the referees as well. And so on the one hand, egregious calls are ridiculous. But on the other hand. So when we did our uh, our episode last week, I, I asked you the question, you know, how do you feel about the the quality of the play? And that was in reference to some of the scrimmage games we had watched. So I'll ask you a similar question again, but now that we've actually got some games that have mattered, how do you feel about the, the quality of play uh, that, uh, that you've seen? I've enjoyed it. I think there's been a few games where rest have been shown. Um, I'm not saying that I'm going to tune into a Magic uh, Nets broadcast anytime soon, but um, at the same time, I've been one surprised by how the fact that I thought the offense was to catch up to the defense, and it seems the other way around for a number of teams. The high-scoring affairs for several teams have been just wild. A lot of games in the 120s uh, at the at the starting point, going into the 130s. Obviously, that crazy game between the Rockets and the Mavericks, and you know, there's going to be a few games I think that are just going to be high. 
high school affairs. Um, and so that's been something. But I've enjoyed it. You, you get to see a lot more of the intensity ratcheted up. Um, obviously, some of the better players are playing more than the scrimmages, and you get to see kind of the uh, different, um, I, I guess, plans of the teams change as they go. You know what I mean? The Spurs are playing a lot of younger guys, and, and they've been very competitive, and, and who knows how that would change, you know, if they continue to win while DeJounte Murray, if they continue to keep going and, and to keep improving. And then you got teams like the Blazers who have different lineups of guys that are healthy. So I've been impressed with the problem on the floor. There's been a lot more games um, that I'm going to rewatch, that I have rewatched, that I'm looking forward to rewatch already, than there were scrimmages, um, which scrimmages are just over the, the hype of just getting basketball back. But no, we're talking about actual good quality games, and I think we've seen that, and I've enjoyed it. Yeah, the 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 contrast with offensive defense has been is has been interesting because yeah, I think most people would anticipate with the restart that the it would be the the offense that sort of has to catch up. Um, but uh, you've more seen that on an individual basis as opposed to teams. You've certainly seen some guys that just don't quite have their uh, their elevation on their jump shot. They're coming up short. Uh, again, I think Kawhi played pretty well in that game, but I thought he showed a little bit of rust. But overall, the teams, I think, have, have been really effective on the offensive end of the floor, and it's been the defense that has uh, that, that needs to sort of catch up to, to how well the offenses are playing right now. And, and uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see that because, uh, as we've talked about, you know, I, I do enjoy a, a fast-paced game, an up-and-down up and game, but it's hard for me to, to uh, truly enjoy these games where it's just basically turnstile defense and uh, guys just getting wide open layup after wide open layup with with zero resistance you know I, I want to see some some intensity out there and and hopefully as we go we'll we'll get more of that yeah I, I'm with you on that I mean some of it just for learning sake is, is good to know that oh ball goes in basket like how they get to where they get and what they're trying to do Exactly. Well, Corbin, this was uh, this was a heck of a lot of fun. Thanks so much, uh, as always, for, for coming on and taking the time. Always a pleasure, Garrett. Um, I'm looking forward to doing a lot more of this with you with the NBA being back. It's awesome. Thanks so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Please, if you can, if you have a moment, go to iTunes and uh, give us a rating and review, preferably five stars. And uh, if you could give any thoughts about what you like about the show, that would be much appreciated. We are also on Spotify, so uh, you can give us a rating on there as well. If you'd like to find some other content outside of this podcast, you can find me on Twitter, at Garrett Bougay. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-B-U-G-A-Y. I will be uh, tweeting various uh, NBA thoughts as well as some, some thoughts on some other uh, interests of mine, including soccer and film and television. So uh, if you're looking for some of my takes throughout the, the course of the week, you can find me there. You can find my co-host Corbin Ford on Twitter at CorbinNBA. That's C-O-R-B-A-N-N-B-A. So uh, he, uh, he does, a, d- does a good job on Twitter as well. He's very active. Uh, Corbin also is the site expert for the fan-sided website Valley of the Sun, which talks all things Phoenix Suns, so you can check out uh, what he's doing there. I'm also doing uh, some work as a contributor 
for Rip City Project, which uh, does all things Blazers. So if you're looking for some written content, you can check those websites out. Corbin also does his own pod on the side called NBA Today. Uh, he, uh, he does some, some fun work over there, so, so please, I encourage you to check that out. But uh, thanks so much again for, for listening, and have a great rest of your day. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details.